like there are so many of those exercises right now we can do like it requires touch right we can't touch people <laughs> whether you're virtually or even in person you're not touching anyone right now welcome to improv interviews with margot escott a psychotherapist in naples florida who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theater masters, founders, and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Well, good morning, Maria Shedler Luera. I am so excited to be able to talk to you today. So am I. Thank you, Margo. I, I understand that you actually studied with Augusto Boyle. And I'd like to hear a little bit about your life before you un- became involved with Theater of the Oppressed and how you found it and just the story of your involvement. Absolutely. So I am uh, originally from Brazil, right? Um, I'm an immigrant and I moved to the United States 17 years ago after college. Um, And I was involved in theater for entertainment in general, musical theater, um, came from a musical background, opera in Brazil, and then musical theater, and then finally straight theater. Um, And then in... When I when I finished some programs, I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to go back to grad school, start grad school here in the U.S. And I um, ended up uh, choosing a program in intercultural relations, so focusing a lot on uh, cultural diversity, but specifically using arts for social change. And so it was very easy for me to, as an immigrant, to do all of my studies and case studies uh, in within the immigrant community. Um, and in studying that, I knew I wanted to use an art form and theater was, you know, the biggest thing. And it's interesting that I only officially discovered the, the full body of work of theater for the oppressed in Augusto Boal as an immigrant in the United States and not in Brazil, where I'm from and where he was from. <laughs> that is funny. Well, for those who don't know, was a Brazilian theater director who created, um, the the creative theater of the oppressed, which is this big umbrella for so many other small techniques that are part of it. Uh, It's a huge body of work. Um, Well, I knew of Augusto Boal in Brazil as uh, a playwright, as a lyricist for some of my favorite songs. And so I knew, uh, I did, I just, I was not involved in theater for social change when I was in Brazil. And so I was not aware of that work also because he, um, in the 70s, you know, he went, uh, he had to leave uh, Brazil and exile and all of that. So like I grew up um, in, like I was still born in the end of military dictatorship, uh, but I grew up already in a different, you know, kind of, uh, of uh, social uh, situation there. So in the United States, I've heard about his work and I discovered that at the time he used to come yearly to teach in the United States, um, you know, they uh, used to hold a yearly, the, the conference still happens, the Pedagogy and Theater of the Oppressed Conference. So Augusto Ball inspired a lot of his work uh, in Paulo Freire, who uh, developed the Pedagogy of the Oppressed. So, and then uh, Augusto Boal used theater to, uh, you know, follow, follow in his footsteps. Uh, um, I saw that he went to Nebraska a lot. Yeah. 
Yes. So I found very interesting. Yeah, that's where the conference, the pedagogy and theater of the press conference used to be held every year um, at the university there because of one of the professors who was responsible for bringing WOW all the time. And then eventually, uh, so that's, it became, it's, it's an organization, PTO, we call Pedagogy and Theater Theopressed. And um, I believe like since last year now, it's been virtual, <laughs> everything that's happening, but they now um, change locations in the United States where they have this conference. So um, it was in one of those conferences that I had the opportunity to go and meet Augusto Boal. And then normally he would offer like a, a pre-conference three full, three to four full days of a workshop, right? In one of his techniques, sometimes form theater, sometimes rainbow of desire, depends on uh, what was happening or legislative theater. And so in some of those conferences, I, you know, I attended his, uh, you know, full workshops. Um, and actually the, um, I, that was, yeah, no, that was the first time I think, I believe I did. And then he also used to travel, not just to these conferences, but to the top lab in New York city, the theater of the press lab, uh, of the oppressed laboratory. And so that was easier for me because at the time I was living in Boston. And so I, it was easier for me to go to New York. And then I also attended some of his workshops there. And, um, and so developed this wonderful relationship with him. One of the things that I can, I always tell people about Boal um, is how accessible he was. And like he represented for me accessibility, uh, you know, to his techniques, to, uh, to the arts. Um, and he, um, you know, if I had a question, I could email him. And in less than 24 hours, I would get an email back, which I always thought it was fascinating, you know, so well known. Goodness, as that's wonderful. That per that personal relationship is fantastic, isn't it? It was, it was, it was, it really was. And, wow. I, and, and I feel like in many ways, you know, I'm being Brazilian and he was Brazilian. So I, of course, um, you know, uh, the, the report we had in our workshops, you know, like going to him and talking, you know, during breaks and speaking Portuguese to each other and checking in um, and having more of a personal connection uh, because both of us were not in Brazil uh, also felt special. Um, and, and he, he really um, represented for me, not just a mentor and an inspiration, but like this grandfather figure um, you know, that I felt really close to as a, you know, early immigrant in the United States. And then I wrote my master's thesis about his work and um, would send uh, things to him. He was still alive at the time. And then right after I graduated, that's when he passed away. Um, and so I've been still able to make, uh, to keep connections with his son who continues his work, Julian Boal. He was always present in the workshops. He's the one who keeps presenting at the conferences and teaching here in the US and traveling the world teaching, um, you know, all of the techniques of theater fear past. So that's how I got started. And then I started teaching uh, as well and using it in my work. Well, he was such a fascinating character. Uh, had there been movies made about him yet? Because his whole life being kidnapped and having to flee the country and then all of his travels, I just found him just an incredible character. What was he What was he actually like? Did he have a charismatic charm? Was he very down to earth? I, I would love to know a little bit more about him personally since you had a wonderful relationship with him. He was um, like, I like to, like I, I will say like, for me, it was like a grandfather figure. And like, he was like a Brazilian descendant from Portuguese, which I also have like part of my descendants is 
uh, Portuguese and um, it, you know, very, um, very accessible, like in so many ways as a teacher and who always was like, he would bring the exercise, talk about the technique, but always really open about like, okay, so what would you do? How can you make this better? And, and not, it was never the type of person who would uh, say like, here's how this exercise work. This is how this technique work. And that's how you have to do it, period. You know, and it was always about, um, with him, I always felt there was no thing about proving. He never had to prove anything. It was always about improving, whether it was improving the life of the oppressed or, you know, the technique itself to make it work for your audience. And, um, you know, but of course, very much like, you know, using this work to empower the oppressed and not the opposite, right? Not on the benefit of the oppressor. Um, he was, um, I, for me, it just like embodied like uh, wisdom uh, through his experience and everything that he he saw. Um, and, you know, there's like um, a book that I, I, I like that was like, that's a conversation between Donaldo Macedo, uh, no, actually, uh, Miles Horton and, and Paulo Freire. Um, and then uh, it's, I think it's uh, the title is we make the uh, we make the road the road by walking. I think it's one of the that's the title. Um, and I feel like in his history, you know, like many of the things that he's done, like as he, you know, had to leave Brazil and go to he went uh, like Argentina and Chile and then like, you know, ended up in France. Um, everywhere he went, you know, working with uh, the population, the indigenous people or in anywhere he was and adapting and changing the technique and creating things, you know, like he was making the road by walking. He was creating all of those things. And he was still doing that. Uh, I believe the last workshop I was able to do with him, he was interested in seeing like, what's next for this? Like, where can this go? Like, what's... Uh, how could that technique be developed further? Like, how can we create something new? How, like, what's the next thing? And uh, and it was for me also just like he represented that whole thing of like uh, how um, the inspiration that he gave me was like the evolution, right? We're always evolving, we're always learning and walking our talk, right? So that's that's how, he was the same person whether he was on with a microphone talking to three hundred people or 101. Um, I didn't, I never felt a difference between Boal on stage or Boal off stage. He was the same person. Um, so. So you mentioned, you know, one of the things you had in common was both being immigrants and he was immigrant of several <laughs> countries, but just a little bit about you personally, Maria, about your experience being an immigrant when you came to this country. Um, had you been to the States before, before you re were a resident here or what was your... I've, I've been to the United States to visit um, um, for one week um, before I, <laughs> uh, just like as a tourist, like I, you know, I, when I turned 15, um, I got a trip to New York City instead of having a big quinceanera, <laughs> like, you know, like in South America, it's, it's a pretty popular that when you turn 15 or the suit 16 here, right, it's like, you get a big party or or in my generation was like, can I, instead of having a party, can I travel? Um, and at the time, it was like, you know, mid 90s, our currency was pretty good with the American dollar. So it was like way easier and possible for international trips. So it was it just worked out that, um, you know, I could uh, make it like make that happen. And so instead of having a party, like spend a week in New York City, which was huge coming from Brazil, spend a week in New York. 
um, that was part of my birthday. But no, I that never- is huge, and that's such an incredible thing because these parties now are costing a lot yeah, of money yeah, here in the state. So what was it? What was it like going into New York? And and did you discover any romance when you first visited the states, or was that later on? Oh no, that was later on. So okay. uh, so I moved to New York after college. I was twenty four, and I was you know I had enough English to get by uh, to um, attend the classes. So I was doing a musical theater program. I went to AMDA, American Musical Dramatic Academy. And, and no, I had to take dance classes and, and uh, singing classes and acting classes, uh, you know, and some variations of those. <laughs> and, um, and I remember having to do like study a monologue or like, especially if it was like Shakespeare, like having, I had the, the text and I had the English modern version of it. And then I had like a Portuguese English dictionary because I'm like, I still don't know what I'm saying. Like, so I... I said I learned English a lot by doing theater and I had to speak on stage. I had to work on my accent. I had to do all of those things. And so I, it, that was a conservatory program for about two years. Um, I was in New York and then I had at the time some cousins, first cousins who were uh, living and studying in Boston. And so after graduating AMDA, I was like, I don't know, uh, you know, I got a work permission for a year, just like every international student, you're allowed uh, to apply for a work permission for one year after you graduate, so you can get some experience in your field of study. So I was allowed to pursue work in the theater field, you know, after, for a year and, and audition and, and, you know, try to get cast, I guess. <laughs> and so it was hard for me to start in New York City. I still had a pretty strong accent at the time. And so one thing I discovered in doing scripted theater here is that um, it's very hard to get cast um, if you have an accent to play American Standard, right? I couldn't. So I could only apply for like roles that were a foreign character. And then they would ask me to do an even stronger foreign character uh, accent because I don't look Latina, even though I am. I could also not apply to play a Latina. You know, like they would call me, I would get calls for Latina roles in plays. And then I would show up and they're like, mm, nope, too white. It can't be a Latina. <laughs> like, so, oh, and so I've been pretty much uh, forced and cast as a white European in the United States as an immigrant. And so I've, I've done plays where I've been asked to do French accent, Polish accent, Russian accent, German accent. And, you know, and that's what I did. And then eventually, um, you know, um, I was able to work with a, a theater company in Boston. So I moved to Boston um, after New York. And that there was a, this theater company that would uh, do summer plays in the park outside uh, bilingual. So one night in English and then the next night in Spanish, which is also not my first language. But, you know, I could memorize the text and perform. And so in one of those plays, that's where I met Will. Um, and so I'll say improv or in American improv is something that happened later for me. Um, so Will and I uh, met, we did a play, we did one of, you know, one of those summer shows together, which was scripted and not improvised, but it was Spanish and English. And then um, after a year, we started dating. Um, and then the rest is history. <laughs> but, but it was also only after, uh, so we were already married for how many years when we moved here? Seven years. We were married for seven years when we moved to Florida. 
And only after that, when we moved here, that I said, okay, I'm going to take all of your improv classes. And so I signed up and Will was my improv teacher for all six levels of improv. And then I joined the musical improv cast here at Florida Studio Theater. And then I, and, and so I got to actual improvisation later um, after doing all of those other things. But um, that's been a little bit of the, my, of my trajectory. And I, I still work and um, I use a lot of theater in my work. Um, I call it just applied theater because I borrow from every single technique that I've been a part of. I've also done playback theater in, while I was in Boston for three years. I was part of a troupe there uh, while I was researching theater of the oppressed, looking for a place to do theater of the oppressed. I found, found out about playback theater um, and then joined a troupe and did a lot of shows for them. So when I worked day, I borrow and I teach from all of these techniques. Sometimes it's a straight boal work and then sometimes a little exercise from playbacks just straight regular theater games and or improv i use it um a combination of all that is fantastic and are you teaching today where do you work today well i um i work as an independent uh artist and consultant and so i here locally in sarasota i am a, a teaching artist uh, for the school district i'm a teaching artist for the van ways for the performing arts i just i do a lot of theater um drama and mindfulness workshops um or i do uh combining social emotional learning with drama uh, so teaching the five competencies of social emotional uh, learning right self self-awareness self-management social awareness, um, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making. I do uh, also, uh, I have the opportunity to bring these workshops to the community, sometimes uh, other local nonprofits working with first responders, survivors of trauma, and then I will bring sometimes techniques that are more, uh, you know, like the, the rainbow of desire of WOW, which is a little more about our internal oppressions and working and teaching those workshops. So I can, I, I will work with whoever wants to work with me. <laughs> so you're an incredibly busy woman and you have children. Yep. And we're in the middle of a pandemic and uh, we're not too far away. I'm in Naples, so we're pretty close together. Do you teach classes that are open to adults that are interested? Yes. Tell, tell us about that. And at some point you'll send me the links so I can put that on our, our uh, text when we do the pod, published so, podcast. Absolutely. So uh, of course, since last... <laughs> So since last year, um, a lot of my work has been transferred uh, online, just like everybody else's. So um, I will every now and then offer workshops that um, I offer through. So I have my own LLC that I started, which is basically you know me and I collaborate with people, but I have a, a website. And so if I have any workshops that I'm teaching currently, I offer uh, that information will be on the website. Um, but I schedule those based on uh, sometimes, you know, when I start getting some interest and people are asking for it, then I will offer. I've done some that are like three part workshops or some just like drop in, you know, come in and you drop in and we learn and we play together. Um, the current uh, Theater of the Press workshops that I've done, I've done uh, more for a targeted audience. So I did uh, that and I uh, working with educators and um, so teachers and administrators for the school district here. And so I have um, teachers attending and now, and then um, after they attend the workshop where they learn about it, they can uh, use some of those exercises and techniques with their students, but they can also have me zoom into their classrooms as a guest teaching artist. And so I've done a residency of two weeks doing 
like forum theater with fifth graders in one school. And now I'm getting ready to work with some middle schoolers and then high schoolers. So these are more targeted audiences that I'm doing work, but every now and then I do offer um, workshops that are open to the public. Uh, but currently they're all online uh, just because, you know, <laughs> of the world the way it is. So, but um, if there are opportunities, you know, and, uh, uh, a place that's like a safe space that we can all be socially distanced because there are so many, we've been able to, and I've been a part of groups where we've been brainstorming and trying to figure out how to transfer some of these exercises and work to online work, right? And yes, it is possible. Not everything's the same. I mean, theater has so much about, you know, like all of these, like if you, if you pick one of Wall's books, like the games for actors and non-actors and you, you like there are so many of those exercises right now we can do, like it requires touch, right? We can touch people, <laughs> whether you're virtually or even in person, you're not touching anyone right now. And so, um, you know, we might not be able to experience a full, you know, the full body of that, like of those uh, techniques right now, but there are definitely exercises that are easy to transfer and we work with what we can work right now, right? Eventually we'll be able to teach again. Then we bring those back. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> uh, we're not going to stop the work because, you know, you can't be in person touching people. So we just adapt. And that's what artists do in many ways too. Right. Now you referred to the book about the games. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just glanced at it, but that would that be somewhat similar to Viola Spolin's book here in the States or whatever yeah. and his game book? Yes, that is a great, it's one of like, I, it's such a big, uh, um, it's, a, it's, I love that book. It's the book that I use the most probably from Boal. I have all of his books. I also really like the Rainbow of Desire book. Um, I have pretty much all of his books, <laughs> but this is a great one uh, just because it breaks down into, you know, like he, Boal used to talk a lot about uh, the mechanization of the body, uh, right? We are, we are so used to just like, you know, like, whether your job is to sit in front of a screen and type in a computer, like we, we lose touch with, um, you know, our senses and to be fully, to fully become a spect actor, like you would say, right? Not a spectator, a spect actor, someone who can observe the action, but also intervene in the action, right? You're the actor, you're the spectator. We all play those two roles in one. Uh, you can't intervene in society and you can't be fully a citizen. You can't be an actor uh, or the protagonist of your own life if you don't demechanize the body and the mind. And, and so a lot of these exercises are divided into all these aspects, like the seeing category, right? To be able to see what we look at. We really, especially like in a world where we are now uh, in social media and the news and we get bombarded by images all the time. And like, we don't really connect anymore with that, right? To be able to really see what we're looking at or really listen to what we hear. Um, so I love this book because it breaks down into categories and you can focus like, let's say, okay, now we cannot really work on touch, but we can work on, let's see the seeing category or the listening category, right? And so work on those. Um, it's a great book and um, I've used it sometimes as is, or I adapt it because I also found that some, some of these exercises, especially um, depend, it depends on the audience, right? Um, as a facilitator, you have to also look at who are you talking to and like, what are they going to be able to do? 
a lot of theater work here, we would say like you are inviting people to get out of their comfort zone, right? I normally don't use that word. I tell people they're not getting out of their comfort zone. I'm so like, you are in control. You're stepping into your growth zone, but it's your choice, right? Will it be comfortable? No, but nobody likes to be uncomfortable. So just make that a little more empowering by saying step into a growth zone. Growth zone is not something you've done before. It's not something easy. It's not something that you know, it's relaxing and all that, but it will allow you to grow and then reflect on that growth. Um, so it's, it's, I, I highly recommend um, this book as well as, I mean, all of, all of his books, I think they're great to read and learn. So, so we're talking a lot about his work and theater of oppressed, but w- maybe we need to give a definition of what exactly is theater of the oppressed for people who've never heard of it before. <laughs> Yeah, so Theater of the Oppressed is this big umbrella of work uh, that uh, was created and developed by Auguste Boal. Uh, the whole goal and mission is to empower the oppressed person, right? So Boal um, created the Theater of the Oppressed in a specific context. And, you know, in Brazil, uh, there was military dictatorship happening um, in the 60s and 70s. And, and you know, there was a very clear oppression coming from outside, you know, from the government to the people, right? Uh, censorship and, and um, you know, actual torture and violence and all of that. So there's cl- a clear oppression. Um, and as um, he developed the, you know, the work, he he wanted to, it, you can't always change the oppressor, right? And we can use it like here, let's use the, the theater term. So the oppressed person here is our protagonist, right? The hero of the story and the oppressor is the antagonist. Now, one of the things that's very clear when you start doing this work is that you understand and you realize that it's not about the hero and the anti-hero or the villain, right? Antagonists, if you are a theater practitioner, you know it's not always the bad person. <laughs> in, in that situation, uh, like thinking about, you know, the government oppressing the people, of course, like, sure, it's very clear <laughs> it's happening. But, but um, when you are doing this work, um, you realize sometimes that you play multiple roles in life, right? I am the protagonist of my own life, but I can also be play uh, and be the antagonist for some other people. Like I know my children might look at me at times and look at me as the antagonist, right? If I tell them to do something that they don't want to do, right? I'm, I'm <laughs> what the definition of like a, the protagonist always wants something, right? In a story, in a play, whether it's your life or an actual play, you want something. And then you have obstacles that are keeping you from getting what you want. And those obstacles are the antagonist or the antagonistic forces. Sometimes it's, you know, just life, but sometimes it's caused by someone or the system. Um, And so to understand that we are also antagonists in other people's stories, you know, at times is important in this work. But the idea is of theater of the press is to be able to use theater to rehearse solutions for, um, you know, to empower the oppressed. So if, if the oppressed is being oppressed because like he wants something uh, and he's not able to get because there's, there is an antagonist force or an antagonist there, um, the whole group um, role play possible ideas to for the protagonist to do in that specific situation. We tend not to change the antagonist the antagonist, whoever's playing the antagonist in that story is just antagonizing. And, you know, because what we want to do is just like think creatively, like what can we do in a situation like that? What can we say? Uh, Like, or, and sometimes we realize it's not even the protagonist who can do much in that story. And then like, let's, then what is the story? Is there a third character in there that's not the protagonist or the antagonist that can actually 
do something and intervene. Maybe it's the bystander or the silent witness, right? That is the person who has all the power. And I find that this is really more the work that I do here in the United States with theater of the press is more, um, people tend to identify more as being the bystander and the silent witness in a story and not so much the oppressed or the oppressor. And so we work towards just finding ways, like if you are in a scene where you are observing oppression and you see that happening, what can you do? Um, how can you intervene? Um, so it really, I mean, it's, it's such an applied work. It depends on who you are. Like you go to a community and they share a problem or a story they have. And then, so that's when you really define the, the scope of the work you're going to do there. Who is the oppressed? Who is the protagonist? Whose story are we working with? Who are the characters? What's happening? Let's hear it and let's role play real life solutions. Let's role, role play as many ideas as we can. And then we ask the protagonist, would you like to try one of those? Do you want to rehearse one of these? Um, and then, you know, hopefully if that's still happening, that can be used. If not, in, if, if in the future that happens again, you are, you know, if you tried out, if you experienced uh, on stage some of these tactics or right or interventions maybe you will have a different idea when you are experiencing a similar oppression you will be able to overcome that or I mean that's the whole idea so reinstating dialogue because um, for Boal when there's monologue there's oppression he would say like we have to reinstate dialogue so how do we do that um, so that's in a nutshell, <laughs> a bit about. It's such amazing work. Um, I was in, uh, two summers ago, I was part of a group from Florida Gulf Coast University and one of the drama professors was had studied theater of oppressed. And we were working with teenage girls, migrant children who were at risk. And the, um, one, the one girl was like sculpting people. Mm -hmm. And she created, the problem was that ice was coming in frequently into their community. And yes. taking people away and so she um assigned different characters by sculpting them mm -hmm. and one little girl she took her hair and she put it over her head like she lifted her long hair put it over her head so it was kind of covering her eyes almost and that character was trump because of the hair <laughs> it was it was very it was very it was a moving piece that they did and you know they weren't actors or anything like that i was so blown away by what they could express and people coming in with possible solutions it was i felt it was very empowering so yeah. I'd, I'd really like myself personally to study it more um yeah, it is and, and sometimes it's not like sometimes you're not going to find an actual solution for a concrete problem right right exercising that creativity and that empowering you know like being bringing dialogue back and, and and getting in touch again with your body reawakening all the senses and demechanizing the body so you can fully express yourself in the world and sometimes that's what you need it like depends on the story right it's, it's hard to go against some you have to we break down the oppression too like who's oppressing like when you think about systemic oppression internalized oppression there's so many different types of oppression so um you know how it's not always easy to find a concrete solution it's not necessarily what we're going after so like if he happens it happens but it's very rare that it does exactly now i read somewhere that people could be in the audience and then just jump on stage and participate now that's very different from improv as we know it in the u.s european so what are some other differences between the improv that we understand here in the west or whatever as opposed to theater of the oppressed. And, and can you talk about some of those differences? 
Uh, sure. So I, I would say like improv in the United States tend to be normally, unless we're talking about applied improvisation, like improv here, when you when you talk about it, it's more in the realm of comedy, improv comedy. Um, and so it's very specific. And then you have different forms, short forms, long forms, right? You have a lot of um, that, which is, but it is the, the whole thing is, you know, of improvisation is just to, you know, be spontaneous, right? Improvising on the spot. Um, theater of the oppressed, you are on the spot improvising, but you are role-playing. It's not like you have a script you're going for, but if it's somebody's story and you are somebody and you're in the audience, even audience members, so they're not spect, uh, they're not spectators, they're spect actors. Um, and that's the whole um, idea, right? For Boal, so like there's no separation. You're watching um, and you, you might be watching, but you might be thinking like, oh my gosh, this character now should say this, this character should try that. But instead of saying what the character should do, you show, you become the character, you become the actor and the protagonist, right? So um, it's very common in a forum theater session, which is the, the you know, probably most widely uh, technique uh, that's part of theater if they're pressed. As an audience member, you can just raise your hand or just shout, stop. Right. When you're doing that, everything stops. And then you don't say like, try this, try that. You know, you come on stage and you replace, I want to replace the protagonist. And you even say like, I want to go back to this part. Let's go back to the beginning of the story or let's take it from here, like from where it stopped. So you decide where you want to take the action to. And then, and then we, and then you role play and then you're showing through your words and your actions what the character could try or should say at that moment. And then the idea is to then talk about that, right? After that, so we can reflect on what did you, what was, you know, what so-and-so tried, what did that person try? What did that other person try? Try to come up with as many interventions as possible. So any audience member can come and try something different. And then we talk about it. And then we go to the real protagonist of the story, the one who shared a story, who started the first role play and said like, would you like to try any of these tactics yourself? See how it feels, right? Um, and, or something else or combine. Um, so it's just a different way. It's, it's a different way to have dialogue, right? Instead of telling people what they should do, show them. And um, because sometimes also you're watching someone, someone else's story at the, in, the, in the audience and you identify with that character, right? It's like, you know, I've, I've experienced something like that and I didn't try this, but I would like to try that. And so when you try, even if it's not your own story, you're also rehearsing for your own life, right? If you find yourself in a similar situation, you will have at least rehearsed something, right? To help you for that. That, that is so amazing and beautiful. I can't imagine that happening in an improv performance somewhere that someone says something, like if they're doing a herald and someone says, well, wait a minute, stop. Um, you know, I'm thinking in, in the United States, I think maybe David Shepard mm -hmm. came closest to wanting to work with this, you know, socially oppressed and bring it to the people as opposed to in the beginning, just a white man uh, privileged kind of uh, art form in a way. And, uh, and you're familiar with David as well. Did you ever meet yeah. David? Uh, yes. yes. Uh, Will and I had the opportunity. I mean, Will knew him uh, definitely more, but I've had the opportunity to um, once go and uh, spend a week in his house. Um, and um, I, um, I was trained in one of the techniques that he developed was the, the movie, um, the movie uh, technique. So we did, uh, his wife used to uh, do a lot of that work 
um, with, uh, with girls. So I spent uh, a whole week in his house and um, I, you know, I trained in his technique as well and was able to, to apply and use that. And uh, it was fantastic. And we did, um, I remember uh, having conversations about Boal, uh, you know, at the dinner table. So, yes. That's wonderful. Wow. Have you written a book yet? Are you writing one? Um, not yet. I, uh, <laughs> I, I will write my, you know, the manuals for my workshops and this and that, depending on what I'm doing. And I've, I've written articles. Um, I have like two articles that um, are theater of the press related that have been published. Um, Great. Where were you um, published? Uh, it's so oh, um, one was it's part of a book on empowering women. The other one was specific uh, about working with this technique, and and um, I can send you the links for those. Yeah, that would be um, great to have those. I'd like to put them about yeah, uh, youth and using theater of the press with youth uh, in a journal um, ed- education uh, that was published. Uh, so I can share those, but you know. I'm still like, I feel like my work, I mean, I, I could write, I can start writing, right? But I'm still like evolving and adding and changing yes. things. And so I'm like, I guess that's why you have revisions too of your work or you keep writing other books then after that. But I, have, I haven't yet, but. Um, well, you're doing so much work yourself. Yes. You're so much work yourself that it's just fantastic. And I would love to have a, a second interview with you and delve more deeply into some of the things we talked about today. Um, and, uh, you know, because we, we, you mentioned playback theater, but not everybody knows playback theater. Um, yeah, so playback in, 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 uh, just very quickly, it, the whole thing. So it was created by Jonathan Fox in the United States and, um, you, the idea it's, it's more in the realm of like theater for social healing, uh, you know, would say it's also evolving and changing and, you know, uh, and it's, um, the idea is you go, you have someone from the audience, you go to an audience, a, a group where whoever you're performing with and somebody in the audience will share a story, right? The teller. Um, and then you have the conductor uh, who will interview that person and all the actors are on stage and the person, the teller who's sharing a story will cast the actors on the spot. I'm like, I want you to play me, you to play my mother, you to play my sister, whoever is in the story. Um, and sometimes not necessarily assigning characters, but are different formats short forms long forms and then the whole idea is that after we hear the story that's part of the interview the actors will play it back that's the idea so it's improvised but we're following a story right and there are different ways of doing that there's song and there's dance and there's uh, movement uh, so just uh, a way to express to play back to honor each other's stories instead of saying like I heard you like let's let us show to you know your story and you tell us if we got it right or not at the end uh, so it's also another technique. So it has similarities to psychodrama, but it doesn't have some of the restrictions that a real psychodrama dramatist right. would use. Yeah. I yeah. heard recently at a workshop uh, that had playbackers and theater theater press to practitioners. They they were saying how they they view playback as the yin. It's more of that nurturing uh, female quality, you know, force, and then theater press as the yang, as more of the active action like change, you know, social force changing things. Um, the yin and the yang of social theater. I like that. That's neat. Well, we certainly are in need of theater for the oppressed today all over this country. 
Yeah, I don't think it will ever end, really. <laughs> I don't think so either. But um, it's just beautiful work you do. So this is going to be part one of our first interview, Maria. And we're going to schedule a time later on to have part two. And I want to thank you so much for visiting us today and for all of your wisdom. You're, oh, I know you're a wonderful teacher just speaking with you. I, I can tell you're just a nurturing, beautiful teacher. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Margaret. Looking forward to the next conversation. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.